Now it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Bobby Cummings, the co-director of Center of the Dream and the proposed African American Studies. warm applause means so much to me and uh, send me some positive vibrations because I'm legally blind and I'm going to do a little struggling but I've practiced this so it'll go smoothly so send me those positive vibes <laughs> um, greetings and welcome from the symposium group and the Central Washington University Center for the Dream I would like to extend a special welcome to the students and future scholars from Davis High School and their teachers. Where is Davis High School? Are you in the house? <laughs> Here we are, almost 50 years after the inception of the first black studies programs on US college campuses. Central Washington University now has a center for the dream, predicated on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy of the essential dignity and advancement of all human beings. The Center for the Dream, now in its first year and a major sponsor of tonight's Cornell West lecture, is funded by the Spheres of Distinction grant from Central Washington University President Dr. Geraldyn McIntyre. <laughs> the Center for the Dream consists of three programs. First is the proposed interdisciplinary Africana and Black Studies program, MINOR. Through the MINOR, faculty will invite students to engage in those habits of mind and actions Cornell West promulgates as his personal philosophy in the Cornell West Reader. This philosophy is, quote, the determination to explore the intellectual sources and existential resources that feed, uh, that feed our courage to be, courage to love, and courage to fight for democracy, unquote. The second program of the Center for the Dream is the inclusive Students for the Dream Living and Learning Community, where students from all backgrounds will explore their own cultures, learn to find themselves in others, and acquire new ways of connecting with people across ethnic, class, gender, religious, and national boundaries. Cornell West states, quote, the existential quest for meaning and the political struggle for freedom sits at, the, sit at the center of my thought, unquote. Through the Students for the Dream residential program, we hope to offer each student the space to pursue these habits of mind and to develop into what Cornell West terms, quote, a more mature and compassionate person, unquote. 
The Center for the Dream's third program, Faculty Development and Community Outreach, will bring faculty together to study, disseminate, and advance knowledge about black America, Africa, and the black diaspora. It is indeed an honor to have Cornell West as the Center for the Dream's inaugural speaker. One of America's most provocative public intellectuals, Cornell West has been a champion for racial justice since childhood. His writing, speaking, and teaching weave together the traditions of the Black Baptist Church, progressive politics, and jazz. The New York Times has praised his, quote, ferocious moral vision, unquote. Currently a professor of religion at Princeton University, Dr. West burst onto the national scene in 1993 with his best-selling book, Race Matters, a searing analysis of racism in American democracy. Race Matters has become a contemporary classic. Dr. West has published 16 other books and has edited 13 texts. In his last book, Democracy Matters, Dr. West analyzes the arrested development of democracy, both in America and the crisis-ridden Middle East. He argues that if America is to become a better steward of the democratization around the world, it must first recognize its own long history of imperialist corruption. His latest CD, Never Forget, A Journey of Reflections, I'm sorry, A Journey of Revelations, is a collection of socially conscious music featuring collaborations with Prince, Outkast, and Jill Scott. Please join the Center for the Dream and the Symposium Group in welcoming Dr. Cornell West to Central Washington University. Blessing to be here. What a blessing to be here, Central Washington University, Ellensburg, Washington. Oh, that's a long way from New Jersey, I tell you. Oh, it's beautiful here, I must say. These mountains are really quite majestic. I want to begin by saluting my dear sister, Professor Bobby Cummings, for those wonderful words, those very kind and, and generous words. Let's give her another hand to you all. Indeed, I also want to acknowledge Sister Geneva Taylor, student leader, student leader, absolutely, native daughter of Seattle, native daughter of Seattle. Of course, Jimi Hendrix comes out of Seattle, so something is happening in that city, past and present, that level of genius. This institution is very blessed to have as, as its public face my new friend and brother, George Popovich. Yeah. 
all the way from Eastern Europe. He does a wonderful, wonderful job. He's a gym and a Jew. And of course, I want to salute the captain of the ship, the president of this institution, President Geraldine McIntyre. Yes, indeed, indeed. I know she's on her way out, and, and uh, she's put in some high-quality service, and you all, I guess, will discover soon who your next president will be. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I think you got a new provost, too, Brother Wayne Kirk. Boy, you got a lot of movement going on in high places. But I also want to salute each and every one of you for coming tonight. I'm humbled by your presence, and I... But no rush tonight. I don't know when I'll get a chance to come back to Ellensburg. And so, uh, absolutely. But I, it's, it's quite appropriate, at least for me, who's dedicated my life to preserve the rich legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and Dorothy Day, and Philip Berrigan. So this Center for the Dream moves me and especially the young people and of course the young folk especially in the back but young folk everywhere especially those high school students i've actually shifted most of my lectures to prisons and high schools in the last five to ten years or so and what's happening now in the nation with our dear brother obama seizing the imagination of young people you all know children young people are 100 percent of the future so I want to acknowledge them as well. Now, I've come here tonight to try to say something that thoroughly unsettles you. I want to unnerve you, maybe even for a moment, unhouse you. Because anytime you talk about race in America, anywhere else in the world, anytime you talk about vicious legacies of white supremacy, it could be male supremacy, it can be imperial arrogance, it could be homophobia, any ideology that loses sight of the humanity of people. That it forces us to raise some very terrifying questions. And of course, this is black history, and we understand it to be the shortest month of the year, but that doesn't reflect <laughs> its significance and its importance. Black history is constitutive of not just American history, but modern history. It's not additive. It's not some marginal affair. So you can't talk about American democracy without understanding the fundamental role of slavery and Jim Crow and Jane Crow and discrimination, and most importantly, what black people produced, those precious gifts that people of African descent have given to America and the world. You know, the great W.B. Du Bois wrote a classic in 1924 called The Gift of Black Folk. Now, many of you read this classic of 1903, I'm sure. The Souls of Black Folk. Souls of Black Folk, of course, is it's a classic. But I know your wonderful library here does indeed have the 1924 text, The Gifts of Black Folk, because black people are never solely victims. We may be resisting, critiquing, wrestling with, grappling with victimization, but we're never solely victims. We're agents in the world, creating visions, creating art, sustaining families and institutions and structures, no doubt. So I want to begin tonight on a Socratic note, because one of the great gifts of black people to America and the world is a Socratic gift. 
And you say, well, Brother West, what do you mean Socratic gift? Well, line 38A of Plato's apology, Plato's great attempt to preserve the rich legacy of his mentor and teacher Socrates. Line 38A says, the unexamined life is not worth living. Malcolm X adds in the background, the examined life is painful. <laughs> Who really has the courage to examine themselves? You know, William Butler Yeats, the finest poet in English language, 20th century, an Irish brother. He used to say that it takes more courage to examine yourself and keep track of the dark corners of, the own, of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. So one of the great gifts of black people has been the courage to think for oneself. To think for one's self. And the Greek actually says the unexamined life is not a life for the human. Human. You know our English word human derives from the Latin humando. Humando. And humando means burying. That's where humility comes from. That's where humanity comes from being earthbound, tied to dust, dirt. And one of the great gifts that black people have made to America is to try to get each and every one of us to raise the most frightening query, what does it mean to be human? What does it really mean to be a featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creature born between urine and feces? That's us. I can put on my three-piece suit if I want to. <laughs> Think I'm somebody. If it wasn't for that love push in my mama's womb that got me out. All that love connected with that stinking stench and blood. And the fact that each and every one of us, our bodies will be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms one day. Unless you're out for cremation terrifying question, and especially so in a civilization so market-driven, obsessed with buying and selling and making and mending, and advertising and seducing, living lives on the surface, living lives of superficiality and not wanting to deal with the tough questions that push us against the wall. And anytime you talk about race mattering or talk about legacies of white supremacy and how, in fact, people of color have tried to negotiate and navigate white supremacist bombardment, we're talking about wrestling with what it means to be human and raising the question of what kind of human being do we choose to be? The quality of our lives, the character of each and every one of us. Who are we really when we take off the mask and not simply enact the same routinized behavior, undergoing the same conventional habits? And of course, for students here at this lovely institution, four years and maybe five, six <laughs> that you spend here, that you hear not just to gain access to a profession, but a vocation. Not just a career, but a calling. What's your passion? What's your purpose? What kind of legacy do you want to leave?
And what is your relation to traditions and stories and narratives that shape your life? Can you put yourself in a story greater than you? Can you locate yourself in a narrative grander than you? Can you resist the egocentrism and the materialism and hedonism and narcissism and rapacious individualism bombarding you every day in mass media? Do you have the courage to think critically and attempt to be a free human being? And it has everything to do with wrestling, with wrestling with the very thing that American civilization always wants to hold at arm's length. The forms of death in America's past and present. You know, Henry James called American civilization a hotel civilization. One of the reasons why he left and went to England and wrote his finest novels. What do you mean, Henry James? He said, well, America's a fascinating place, highly creative individuals, technological ingenuity running amok, people concerned about their upward mobility, gaining access to money, what the Wu-Tang Clan said, cream, cash rules everything around me. They say it doesn't rule me, but it rules everything around me. Not just cash money, status, power, but all black history at its best. Raising the question of what it means to be human says, no, America, hotel civilization, you are going to have to come to terms with the forms of death in your past and in your present if you are to mature. You are not innocent. Please don't be a nation to move between perceived innocence and corruption without a mediating stage of maturity. And of course, American slavery was a form of social death. 52,300 voyages from the precious continent of Africa to the New World between 1444, the middle part of the 19th century. Millions of African bodies in the Atlantic Ocean who never made it. Millions more who did make it to the New World, entering chains, shackles, Social death, no legal status for these particular human beings whatsoever. No control over land or territory. No rights, simply laborers to be exploited and bodies to be degraded and their thoughts viewed as abominations. You see, social death, that's 244 years in the makings of first colonial America and then the United States of America turn to the U.S. Constitution, you see no reference to the institution of slavery. You can imagine some of the academic historians coming along and say, well, that's a very creative tension between principle and practice. <laughs> they know it's hypocrisy, it's mendacity, it's denial. It's an attempt to somehow think you can evade and sidestep and ignore, beginning with the 22% of the inhabitants of the 13 colonies whose labor constituted a fundamental pillar for the precious yet precarious experiment in democracy called the USA. And let us never, ever forget about our red brothers and sisters. It was their precious children. It was their land. 
dispossessed, which constituted the precondition for any talk about the United States of America. That's the night side. That's the underside. When one understands oneself, it's a grand city on the hill where the sun is always out, a moral exemplar to the world, a hotel civilization, a hotel which, institution where the lights are always on. And I appreciate the hotel y'all put me in tonight. I want <laughs> But I don't confuse the realities of that hotel with the realities of Ellensburg or Yakima or any other parts of this region. It generates a death-dodging, death-ducking, death-denying civilization, a sentimental civilization. It's obsessed with comfort and convenience and contentment and don't want to come to terms with the forms of death in its midst. And when you talk about black people in America, you're talking about a people who have been on intimate terms with forms of death, beginning with the social death of American slavery. Of course, you all know the story with the Union Army breaking the back of white supremacist American slavery, 12 years America attempting to do something unprecedented in human history, trying to create a multiracial democracy. Let us never forget there were more black senators in the 1870s than there is today. And that one senator's on the move. He's running for president. So he may not be there too long. He may not be there too long. Right. 1877, the Union Army may have won the war. White supremacy wins the peace. Jim Crow, Jane Crow, lynching every two and a half days for another half century, some black child, a black man, a black woman hanging from some tree. Strange fruit the southern trees bear that the great Billy Holiday sang about with such power. And the Jewish brother Maripol writing the lyrics for that classic jazz song. It was a form of civic death for black people. No rights. The white mainstream need respect, the U.S. Supreme Court said. What does it mean to be part of the body politic? But at the same time, second, third, fourth class citizens in inverted commas. This is the history, the backdrop. But does race matter? We have to understand what effects and consequences do we attempt to keep track of, even given the progress and Brother Obama on the move. 244 years of American slavery, social death, 95 years of civic death, Jim Crow, Jane Crow, lynching. And let's be clear about this when we talk about Jim and Jane Crow. We're really talking about a form of terrorism, a form of American terrorism. I know 9-11 has generated a whole discourse on terrorism in America. And I was there in New York that fatal day, gangster activity, killing innocent people. And I said to myself, for the first time in the history of this nation, all Americans will feel unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence, and hated for who they are. Then I noted, but to be black in America, 400 years, unsafe, 
unprotected, subject to random violence, hated for who they are. Black folk not just on intimate terms with forms of death, but in close proximity to terrorism. What's it like to have violence in your face? The threat of violence always haunting one. We could call it the attempt to niggerize the people. When you niggerize the people, you try to ensure that they remain so scared and so intimidated and feel so helpless and hopeless that they go around deferring to the powers that be. They scratch and don't itch and laugh when it's not funny just in order to negotiate and navigate through the powers that be. How do you resist that kind of tear, that kind of niggerization? It's a rich history, very rich history. You know, during slavery, of course, what did black folk do? Black folk attempted to raise their voices because it was the only thing they controlled, their voices and their bodies. And they formed circles held hands in the ring shout, a non-literate people creating songs that we still sing, wade in the water, swing low, sweet chariot, steal away. And of course, this is under conditions of religious persecution because black people could not worship God without white supervision. So the very land of religious liberty the very reason why Europeans came to the United States because they were religiously persecuted create a regime in which these particular peoples cannot worship God in a free manner. Again, the hypocrisy and the mendacity. You see. But the resistance was there. You see. The music, the voices. During Jim Crow, what would black people do? Try to sustain their families. Try to sustain their black colleges because they could not attend white institutions of higher learning. They would create something distinct called the blues. And the blues is not a form of entertainment and amusement in any superficial way. It's a way of life. It's a way of struggle. The blues is personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. It's a sweet and sad indictment of misery that allows you to sustain yourself. And all of us, of course, are now so deeply influenced by the blues idiom. Because anybody who thinks they can make it from their mother's womb to tomb without wrestling with catastrophe is living a life of self-deception. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are care what sexual orientation you choose, what nation. To be human is to wrestle with the catastrophic. But if you're a sentimental nation, you act as if you can hold the catastrophic at arm's length. And so it's no accident that even the founding fathers in their grand democratic vision, highly truncated, we, the people, no people of color, not including women, not including white brothers who have no property, who's left? Highly propertied 
white brothers are left. Democratic vision highly circumscribed, highly truncated. You end up fighting a civil war over an institution not invoked in your constitution and end up hiding and concealing the terroristic system of Jim and Jane Crow as you tell the world that you are a grand exemplar of democracy and liberty. Resisting forms of death, social death, slavery, civic death, Jim Crow. And of course, for black people, there's psychological death, trying to convince black people that we're less intelligent and less beautiful and less moral, inferior to other human beings, and trying to ensure that the seeds within the souls and minds and hearts of black people sprout in such a way that black folk walk around doubting themselves, degrading themselves, demeaning themselves, unable to straighten their backs up. Anytime you straighten your back up, you're going somewhere because folk can't ride your back unless it's bent. But it's difficult to stand the way Sly Stone sang about staying in the 1970s because it takes courage Tremendous courage. That's why Harriet Tubman is a hero. 19 times she goes back into American social death and attempts to bring out of that darkness free people on their way to the north of Canada. That's why Frederick Douglass, the most eloquent, I didn't say articulate, Black people are always wrestling with white brothers and sisters saying, oh, he or she is so articulate. Which means they've mastered the language of the mainstream. Eloquence is something else. Quintilian and Cicero, the great theorists of rhetoric, define eloquence as what? Wisdom speaking grounded in courage and compassion. That's something else. Frederick Douglass was the most eloquent ex-slave in the history of the modern world. And what was he talking about? How do we promote unarmed truth and unconditional love? Echoed by Martin 100 years later. Unarmed truth, recognizing the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. And unconditional love, recognizing that justice is what love looks like in public. Because when you love folk, you can't stand the fact that they're being treated unfairly. You loathe the fact that they're being treated unjustly. You have a righteous indignation when it comes to persons being dehumanized and subjugated and subordinated, not just in America, but anywhere in the world. And that's the best of black people's resistance against those forms of death the slavery, the Jim Crow, the psychological death, and of course the spiritual death that we see in so many hoods and chocolate cities these days, the spiritual death of hopelessness and lovelessness and even touchlessness. People making their move from their mother's womb to tomb, feeling as if nobody loves them at all. 
And it's not anything new. B.B. King used to sing, Nobody Loves Me But My Mama, and she might be jiving too. That's the blues. But that is about as catastrophic as it gets. Who wants to live a life feeling as if they're never loved and feeling insignificant in the face of bodily extinction? It's difficult to conceive of a more bleak mode of existence. And when you no longer have resources to pull from, to resist that kind of spiritual death, you end up with self-destruction and self-violation, self-degradation, hating yourself, hating others who look like you, feeling as if the only way you can protect yourself is to engage in gangster activity, to allow your gangster proclivities to become salient and manifest in how you live and work in the world, you see. It's a very, very difficult, fragile situation, as Atlantic Star would put it. But brother, what are you accenting here? What I'm accenting here is when you talk about black history, you're looking at the world through the lens of the catastrophic, the horrendous, the calamitous, the scandalous, and the monstrous. And that is to cut against the grain of American culture. It shatters a Peter Pan-like sensibility where you're innocent and never grow old. It shatters Disney World and Disneyland-like orientation. Everybody walks around with a smile trying to have fun. I mean, Disneyland brags about saying no one has ever died on their premises. Somebody probably about to die, they just push them out. <laughs> Keep the record clean. And I grew up in California, I have nothing against fun, but where there is no death, there is no life. Of course, the young folk understand this as students here at Central, because your education itself is a process of learning how to die in order to be reborn, what the Greeks call paideia, P-A-I-D-E-I-A, -E deep education, a formation of attention. So you shift from the superficial to the substantial. You shift from the frivolous to the serious. It's not just about hedonism. It's about wrestling with life and death. The cultivation of the self in which you learn to wrestle with reality and not live in some world of make-believe like the American Hamlet in that classic by the white literary blues man named Tennessee William where Blanche wants to live in a world of make-believe and not come to terms with the pain and suffering and what she did to Alan, her husband. Allow for a maturation of a soul which you have to really learn how to love. You've got to cultivate the capacity to not just resist hatred, but learn how to love. Not just to hate injustice, but learn how to cultivate justice. And I'm sure many students here, you all have that wonderful experience of leaving the classroom after wrestling with a difficult text and recognizing that your worldview rests on pudding. You're just completely disoriented kind of intellectual dizziness, you know, existential vertigo, 
a disturbance at the very core of who you are. Shakespeare's Hamlet has discombobulated you. Tony Morrison's beloved push you against the wall. Beckett's waiting for Godot has left you vacuous, so light you don't know what to do. How am I going to proceed? Mom and dad taught me this. They haven't given me enough to deal with these texts. That's called education. You're learning how to die because when you give up certain assumptions and presuppositions, you are being reborn. That's why Montaigne says to philosophize is to learn how to die. And Seneca says he or she who learns how to die unlearns slavery. There's a connection between learning how to die and becoming a free person. And black people have been wrestling with learning how to die and especially wrestling with that assumption or dogma called white supremacy. And if white supremacy didn't die in part in the souls of black folk, you wouldn't see any black folk here in this audience. Would have been gone a long time ago. That's called being deniggerized. Resisting niggerization. Learning how to become mature. Learning how to develop. Learning how to grow. And there's a direct connection between that kind of courage, like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, and the flowering and flooring of democracy. Because American democracy would not exist if it were not for those black folk who resisted white supremacist bombardment and resisted it in such a way that they decided, in fact, to promote unarmed truth and unconditional love. One way of trying to make this concrete is to look at Emmett Till's mother. You all know the story of Emmett Till, right? Some of 1955, August 1955. Old brother Emmett's in gut bucket Jim Crow, Mississippi. Winks at her white sister, ends up with body thrown in the Tallahatchie River. She brings his body back to the south side of Chicago in Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ. She keeps the casket open. All of the authorities, federal state locals to keep that casket closed we don't want the world to see the night side of american democracy she said no this was my only baby his father fought in the u.s army and held the flag for the platoon the world is going to see it Fifty thousand fellow citizens not all black but disproportionately black you had white brothers and sisters and some brown and asians come through to look at his body. That was, a, that was the first massive civil rights demonstration three months before a courageous sister named Rosa Parks set out on a bus in order to stand up for justice. And what did Emmett Till's mother say when she stepped to the pulpit of that church? Tears flowing from her eyes. She looked over looked at his head his head was five times the size of his ordinary head john johnson took a picture of it put it in jet put it in ebony so the world could see it and she said i don't have a minute to hate i'll pursue justice for the rest of my life she spoke on behalf of the best of not just black people not just america she spoke on behalf of the best in the human spirit. Who has the courage 
to be Socratic enough to critique a dogma like white supremacy, but at the same time, in the midst of one's tears, not to succumb to revenge and bigotry and bitterness. She didn't have to read Shakespeare's The Merchant of, Ven of Venice to know the difference between justice and revenge. She didn't have to study the paration of Portia on mercy in Shakespeare's classic to understand that her resistance to American terrorism would take the form not of counter-terrorism, but of struggling for love and justice. Martin Luther King Jr. had the same challenge when he had to give the eulogy for the four young sisters in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham two weeks after he told America about a dream that he had in Washington. It was September 1963. First time he cried in public. What did he say? Somehow we've got to muster the strength and courage to pursue love and justice in the face of terror. Now, why is that significant? Significant in a number of different ways, but one, especially these days, is that given his talk about terrorism, if black people had responded to American terrorism the way many of our leaders responded to 9-11, hunt them down like cockroaches, bring them back dead or alive. Nobody messes with us. We are the policemen of the world. A machismo identity, we've been wounded. When we choose not to be wounded healers, we choose to be wounded herders. But no, Mom Teal, Martin Luther King Jr. decide that the response to terrorism is not to get in the gutter with the gangsters. It's better to be defeated momentarily and right than to win and be a gangster. And people raise the question, I travel all around the world. Why is it that black folk never created a black Al-Qaeda after being terrorized for 400 years? That's a serious question. Terrorism is real. If you don't understand the difference between revenge and justice, you just reinforce the same cycle of terrorism over and over and over again. If black people had responded to American terrorism with counter-terroristic groups, there would be no American democracy at all. There would have been a civil war every generation. I tell my white brothers and sisters, sometimes when you see Negroes, you ought to just give them a standing ovation. It's true. It's true. Oh, Jamal and Letitia, we thank you for Frederick Douglass. We thank you for Martin King. We thank you for Duke Ellington. We thank you for Curtis Mayfield. We thank you for Aretha Franklin. We thank you for Stevie Wonder. We thank you for Ray Charles. Why? Because they decide to take a high road. They've all been niggerized, but they decide not to engage in counter-terroristic activity. They still have smiles on their faces in the midst of their heartache. They still have a willingness to reach out to others across various lines, racial and regional and religious, even given the attempt of the powers that be to subjugate them. This is a grand lesson. It's a Socratic lesson in, in one sense because it has to do with very deep questioning, but it goes far beyond Socrates, because let us never forget that Socrates, of course, like Jesus never wrote a word, and I don't encourage that among the students here. Uh, you want to be Socratic, but don't imitate Socrates in that sense. 
But Socrates also never cries. He never sheds a tear. You look at the dialogues of Plato and the dialogues of Xenophon, the satirical depiction of Socrates and Aristophanes as the clouds. He never sheds a tear. And this is where the best of black history, Mom Teal and Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Haber out-Socratize Socrates. They raise questions that even he is unwilling to grapple with. Why? Because you can't talk about black history without talking about tears. The willingness to cry. It has something to do with the legacy of Jerusalem. There's no doubt about that. It has something to do with Hebrew scripture, which begins with the people oppressed, crying out with affliction. It has something to do with the first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus, who weeps. Why does Jesus weep? He weeps twice. Weep for Lazarus. He weeps for Jerusalem. It's a qualitative difference between arguing and weeping. Argumentation, indispensable, necessary, but not sufficient. You weep because you care, because you love, because you're invested in something. And black folk understand that in many ways, black folk at our best, Understand in many ways, maybe we're most human when we stand before the coffin of our mothers. And we're forced to bring together the three dimensions of time, the past, the present, and the future. This is not a moment of hedonism, which is just the present reproduced over and over and over and over and over again. This is not talk about gratification. You've got to come to terms with the corpse, and you are the quick. And the question is, what legacy will you leave for the young people? Because you will someday be in that coffin, and they'll stand before you. And what kind of persons will they be when they stand there? Humando. And in many ways, black folk have always stood there. So many coffins, not just individual coffins. The average slave only lived to be 26 years old during American slavery. Jimi Hendrix died at what, 27? But also, the coffin of their dreams, butchered. The coffin of their hopes, called into question. Is it a mere accident that when you look at the best of black history, the great cultural monuments that black people have put forward, the central theme has been how can a hated and despised people love themselves and love others in such a way that they promote democracy by connecting a quest for public interest and common good to the most vulnerable, not just themselves, but the poor and working folk across the board. Just listen to John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, probably one of the greatest artistic products in American civilization, when you see the fusion of the Socratic and the prophetic, the spirituality of genuine questioning of himself, society, and world, and the spirituality of deep love and compassion. Look at Toni Morrison's Be Loved. She loves herself and her baby so thickly, to use her language, that she murders her baby so that her baby will not be dirtied by white supremacist victimization, violated sexually, 
culturally degraded. Look at James Baldwin's essays. Harlem's son never went to college, but college went through him. I want to encourage that among the young folk here at college, though. You don't want to just come to Central and get schooled. You want to get educated. Some folk go to college and don't allow a college to go through them. They just end up with a skill and some social network. And maybe a little alcohol on the way, but I'm not talking about students here. I'm talking about students there. <laughs> no, James Baldwin was wrestling with paideia. And look at his essays. Every line shot through with a love ethic. Do you have the courage to recognize the ways in which love forces you to take off the mask you fear you cannot live without, but know you cannot live within? That's Jimmy Baldwin. Or songs in the key of life of a genius from Detroit named Stevie Wonder. Love in need of love. We could go on, even R. Kelly stepping in the name of love. I know he got problems. But the musical tradition that he's a part of has everything to do with allowing love talk to enter political discourse. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. is a wave in an ocean when he talked about love not as some kind of manby-pamby, Hollywoodized sentiment but as a steadfast commitment to the well-being of others. And that love and service was in fact integral to a way of being in the world. Echoes again of Hebrew scripture. To be human is to have hesed, steadfast love for the weak, the widow, the most vulnerable. Echoes of the 25th chapter of Matthew, the least of these. That's a grand tradition. Usually a tradition that's pushed to the margins. Usually a tradition that has very little potency in most historical moments. Oftentimes it goes underground and that's why so many of the black leaders ended up underground or shut down like dogs like Brother Martin on that balcony. Lorraine Motel in Memphis and we'll be Reflecting on this now 40 years in April, right? Brother Tavis Smiley, my dear brother, you all know Brother Tavis is going to Memphis. He'll be there a whole week. But not separating Martin in any way from this longer historical continuum. You see. It's quite a history. It's a grand, grand tradition. And it's beginning to resurface. Last 30 years, we've been living in a political ice age, beginning with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Ronald Reagan, masterful communicator, seductive smile, jovial, valorizing morning in America, and yet declares his candidacy in Philadelphia, Mississippi where three civil rights leaders were shot down by American terrorists and calls for states' rights, which is a code word for white supremacist subordination. Was Ronald Reagan a racist in his soul? I do not know. 
I'm concerned about the effects and consequences of his language and his policies, as we all ought to be. And when asked three days later who his favorite politician was, he said, Jefferson Davis. The president of not just the white supremacist pro-slavery confederacy, but the head of that violent insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government called the Confederacy. He said, oh, Brother West, I thought you were talking about the Black Panther Party. No, no. Black Panther Party was just trying to police the police. Make sure police abuse and police brutality, police brutality was brought to an end. You see. But from 1980 until 2008, for the most part, we've lived in a political ice age. A political ice age is a historical period where it's fashionable to be indifferent to the suffering of other people, but especially the most vulnerable. So we got lives of the rich and famous. CEO salaries, which were once $35 for every $1 for the worker, is now $621 for every $1. Profits bursting out all over. Wages for working people stagnant. 1% of the population now owning 51% of the net wealth. I didn't say income, I said wealth. Corporate greed running amok. That's what Business Week says. <laughs> Most pro-business magazine in the country, in the world. Corporate greed running amok. 22% of all American children living in poverty in the richest nation of the history of the world. It's a moral disgrace. The most disgraceful school systems. It's true. Disgraceful school systems, not just in chocolate cities, but in vanilla rural pockets, too. Just in South Carolina with Brother Obama, the corridor of shame. Some of these schools around from... Since 1905 and 1910, textbooks still wrestling with the civil rights movement. That's a shame. Infrastructure's collapsing. 46 million fellow citizens, no health care insurance at all. Hard-working mothers, no access to child care whatsoever. Not enough jobs with a living wage. Housing decrepit. Where's all the wealth? Hemorrhage at the top in a disproportionate manner. That's a political ice age. Indifference. It's just all about me. Back to cream. It's all about my personal and individualistic project. Everybody obsessed with success, success, success. What do you want to be successful? What do you want to be successful? What do you understand success to be? Financial prosperity. Okay, fine. But don't confuse financial prosperity with moral magnanimity. Don't confuse your individual security with personal integrity. What is the difference between success and greatness? When you look at the best of black history, greatness says he or she who chooses to be a certain kind of human being such that by pursuing unarmed truth and unconditional love, you are concerned about the quality of your service to others and you find joy in serving others. 
concerned about your depth of love and compassion for others across all lines. And it's not just a cliche. It's a way of life. And we're losing sight of the best of that history. And when you lose sight of the best of that history, you find yourself sliding down a slippery slope of materialism and hedonism and narcissism and egoism. I tell young folk all the time that, especially young black people, but this is true for white brothers and sisters and brown and yellow and red as well, that the best of the past and the best of black history did not undergo the sacrifice just to produce successful young folk or successful Negroes walking around like peacocks. Look at my foliage. I'm somebody. Look at my achievements and accomplishments. Look at my lineage of degrees. I gain access to higher echelons in corporate America. Okay. And... And, and, peacocks strut because they can't fly. <laughs> they walk around. Oh, I'm somebody. Self-congratulation. Self-celebration. Comfortable in the black hole of their own privacy. Where's the connection to public? Where's the connection to others? When I run into young folk, and especially young black folk, when they talk about how well things are going, I know they're talking about themselves. They haven't kept track of the prison industrial complex. 2.2 million prisoners now. The most incarcerated population on the globe is in the United States. 62% of them soft drug charges tied to mandatory sentence sentences under Bill Clinton. Wasn't just the right-wing, cold-hearted, mean-spirited Republicans. We talking about Bill Clinton trying to triangulate with the Republicans. Welfare bill the same way. Signed the bill that Reagan himself wouldn't have signed. To try to triangulate, which is to say, to win the next election. That's the difference between a statesman and a politician. Who keeps track? Of the least of these, it has been so far on the fringes and the margins during this ice age that many of us begin to wonder whether Eugene O'Neill, another white literary blues man who wrote the greatest American play ever written called The Ice Man Cometh, free play. And it's all about stimulation of bodies and titillation of body parts. I, mean, I go to some of these high schools and I tell young folk, I say, you know what, if the logic of so much of the hedonism is just to be connected with an orgasm machine for the rest of your life and just have continual perennial orgasm. <laughs> Don't take time for conversation. <laughs> Don't need to take time for dialogue. Just hook up and have pleasure at the highest level. <laughs> then you see how empty it is. I'm a Christian, but I'm not against orgasm per se. <laughs> I, will just, I, want, I want to be clear about that. <laughs> but all I'm saying is, is that when you have a culture that produces spiritual malnutrition and moral constipation, it's difficult for soul cultivation to take place. 
And education is tied to soul cultivation. And in the end, as Eugene O'Neill puts it in that classic of 1946, The Iceman Cometh, what does it profit a nation to gain the whole world and lose its soul? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose its soul? And I'm not just talking about Michael Jackson and Britney Spears. God bless both of them. But their exhibition, A, and B, and their lives are continuous with our own lives in terms of the culture that we're trying to wrestle with and come to terms with. And democracies cannot survive based solely on market-driven preoccupations with instant gratification and narrow conceptions of economic growth that have little to do with quality of life of the masses of citizens therein. Because we know even contracts, which is, a very, which is the dominant metaphor of a capitalist civilization, contracts presupposes non-contractarian values like trust. And if there's no trust, then the contract is just another occasion for gangster activity. And all we need do is ask our indigenous brothers and sisters when they came together to sign treaties, and after they both signed the treaty, we shot them in the back so many times. That's gangster activity. And of course, we won't get into marriages and contracts. But we pray for Eddie Murphy and Tracy. <laughs> God bless them. Non-market values like love and justice and trust and fidelity push to the margins. Are we witnessing now the slow melting of the political ice age with Brother Obama and Sister Hillary, Brother John McCain? That's a fascinating question. There's unbelievable enthusiasm, especially among young brothers and sisters of all colors around my dear brother Obama. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. I was introduced just the other day in Florence, South Carolina by old Reverend Brackus, pastor of Monumental Baptist Church. Been pastoring that church for 52 years. And he was crying like a baby. He said, I just didn't ever think in my lifetime that I would see white folk voting for a black man for president. He said, my God, I just, I didn't, I, I, he said, Brother West, I couldn't conceive it. I couldn't conceive it. Because he's from Gut Bucket Jim Crow, South Carolina. That's a, other than Mississippi, that's about as bad as it gets in terms of the thickness of niggerization. And by niggerization, again, I mean, the force of the violence and the tear right in your face. I'm sure some of you have been to South Carolina. You produce geniuses like Dizzy Gillespie, but that's, he's not the norm. Most are scared, fearful of the powers that be. You see, are we witnessing the melting? I hope so. I don't want to be naive. Socratic note, courage to question, courage to think for yourself, attempt to be free in your own way. To follow the Negro National Anthem, which is the anthem of a blues people, to lift every voice. 
every voice. You can't lift your voice without courage, the way the slaves did singing the spirituals. I listen to contemporary music these days and keep track of a little bit of hip-hop culture, and I tell the young brothers and sisters, I say, you know, one of the things that's striking about your generation that's different than mine is y'all got so many copies and so few originals. It's true. Now, I granted, you know, I'm Motown, Philly Sound, Stax, Curtis Mayfield generation, you see. But Curtis was original. James Brown, the funk master. You know, he found sublime beauty in the funk. He found profound love in the funk. He was an original. Sly Stone was an original. Stevie Wonder, original. Wilson Pickett, Sam Cooke, Lou Rawls. We can go on and on. Carol King, Stephen Sondheim, these are originals. Then I look at the young folk now. You know, who's original? Usher, maybe. Alicia, yeah, okay. But the, it's not just them. But they're wrestling with a market-driven industry that's not concerned about stirring souls and producing music that stirs souls. They simply want music to titillate bodies. So crack that can do it. And I love Brother Soldier Boy. <laughs> but I hope that Negro grows. <laughs> He's got to become an ego. But stirring the soul is crucial for a people whose preservation of integrity and soul has been requisite for their sanity. And you end up with bubblegum disposable music, and you're going to, to have a bubblegum disposable soul. That your armor is going to be so weak and so thin that you're not going to be able to cultivate your capacity to think for yourself. Because when you have copies so ubiquitous, you end up with conformity and complacency and cowardice rather than nonconformity and compassion and courage. That's why Curtis Mayfield is important. That's why he could be in a wheelchair and sing about the New World Order with Roger Troutman setting up the technology for him in Atlanta. Because he was committed to something deeper than just the money. And I hear young musicians over and over again, the brother of infinite value call himself two quarters, half a dollar, 50 cent. <laughs> God bless him. He's a talented brother. What does he say? I made it for the money, not the music. Duke Ellington turns over in his grave. Sarah Vaughn turns over. Carmen McRae turns over in their grave. What are you talking about? Monk, Miles, music is not some kind of means to an end. It's the very constitutive element that allows you to sustain yourself. You come from a blues people. And if your music gets thin and impoverished, you're not going to be equipped enough to promote the love and justice that kept not just black people going, but American democracy going. Because Douglas and King and Fannie Lou are figures in American and modern history, not just black history. All three intertwined, and they understood the fundamental role of music. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. said, I can't survive without a genius named Tommy Dorsey. 
who wrote Precious Love, Lord, the song that was sung at his funeral in Atlanta. You all know Precious Lord. That same Thomas Dorsey, who was a blues man, but when his wife and baby died the same day, he came running back to the church and took over the musical direction of Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago. In fact, it was Thomas, Thomas Dorsey's niece was the mentor and teacher of R. Kelly in Greenwood High School in Chicago. It's part of where his genius comes from. When you raise your voice, you are not an echo. Echoes are copies. Imitation is suicide. Emulation is a sign of an adolescent mind. We all undergo imitation and emulation on the way to creation. Like Miles imitating Johnny Hodges. And Monk says, John, you got to find your voice. You got to get beyond imitation. Johnny Hodges and the Duke Ellington band is tough, but he found his voice. You see? You can't imitate Lester Young. He's the prez. And I'll tell Brother Obama all the time, I say, I really hope you're the first president, but you'll never be the prez like Lester Young. <laughs> because in raising your voice and not being an echo, you have the courage to forge what you see in Lester Young when he's playing behind Billie Holiday. The elegance of earned self-togetherness against the backdrop of catastrophic circumstances. You know he's about to collapse, but he's so cool. He's so calm. He's so confident. He's so creative in that particular moment. That's what we need in the younger generation these days that confidence, that compassion, that willingness to connect, that willingness to help each other out. It's been a beautiful thing to see the kind of rallying around Brother Kanye after the death of his beloved mother. The community can come together and express deep support because that is a catastrophic situation. That's why you see mama carved in the back of his head and he picks up awards. Because in the end, he knows that if his music doesn't allow him to sustain that catastrophic situation, all the Grammys in the world are but sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. He's still on edge, the edge of life's abyss. This is true for all of us. This is why when you talk about black history, you're never ever talking solely about political issues. You've always got to connect the personal and the political, the spiritual and the social, the existential and the economic, namely wrestling with what does it mean to be human. Now, I started on a Socratic note, and I want to end on a blue note. I've been talking about the blues throughout, and there's no doubt that for the next as far as down as we can see through the quarters of time, we're going to have to have a blue sensibility. We can't be sentimental. This is especially true in U.S. foreign policy, in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, thinking that somehow there's an axis of evil over here and we're part of an axis of good as if we don't have evil shot through our own history, as if they don't have elements of good even in their authoritarian regimes. This is true in our politics, 
Democrats versus Republicans, as if one group has a monopoly on truth, that's a lie. It's a lie. And it could very well be the two-party system itself is too narrow, and we need voices from outside of the two parties. I'm glad that Ralph Nader is around. <laughs> Ralph Nader got something to say in terms of corporate domination, colonization of Washington, and so forth. You see, no doubt. I'm glad Ron Paul is around. Oh, yeah, we need some libertarians around because rights and liberties are preconditions for democracy. See it in Cuba. Magnificent literacy, magnificent health care, unbelievable. First world diseases, not third world diseases. No poverty in terms of relative relation of rich to poor. That also is worth learning from. But when it comes to rights and liberties, what's going on, Fidel? Why are you so scared? I know the CIA been trying to kill you for so long, but you have to have rights and liberties to have a desirable way of life for the masses of people of those sly stone called everyday people, the late great James Cleveland called ordinary people. We have to be able to learn from persons across the board. And as we enter this melting, maybe we can have that kind of openness that blues musicians have and jazz musicians have. Even when you don't like their styles, you can still learn something. Herbie Hancock can learn from Joni Mitchell. That's a beautiful thing. Why? Because it's human. Of course, Joni Mitchell learns from Herbie. It's human. Integral to any attempt to engage in everyday people raising their voices in such a way that they are heard in the decision-making processes and institutions that guide and regulate their lives. That's what democracies are. But it's not static and stationary. Democracy is always a verb. It's action. It's process. And there's a relation between process and product. There's a relation between means and ends. Can't have gangster means and end up with democratic ends. The two are tied together. And that's what's so wonderful about the best of black history. Jazz itself was the greatest art form of the 20th century in the eyes of many of us. It's nothing but democratic symbolic action. You can't be a jazz musician if you're just an echo and imitation. You have to find your voice. And you can't find your voice without bouncing your voice against other folks who are struggling to find their voice. And when those voices come together in polyphonic coagulation and cooperation, you end up with something neither of you all could predict. Every night is different. Every performance, same song, is different because you're so flexible, you're so fluid, you're so protein, you're so open, you're so patient, you're so tolerant, you're so humble and secure that you can stand with confidence but know you're a fallible human being and you've got to learn from others and your voice isolated is nothing without their voices being tied to yours. That's democratic symbolic action and you can go home and listen to John Coltrane's quartet to understand what I'm talking about. That's a lesson. It's a gift of black people. Now, do we have what it takes for the melting to take place? We shall see. It's an exciting moment to be alive. People say, oh, Brother Obama is a post-racial candidate. Say, what do you mean by post-racial? Well, white brothers and sisters are voting for black candidates. 
Why does that make it post-racial? Black folk have been voting for white candidates for hundreds of years. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's true. Oh, America's reached a point now where we're colorblind. What is that? Well, Brother Wesley, it means that when I see you, I don't see a black man, I just see a man. <laughs> Why you got to eliminate my body? <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. never called for people to be colorblind. He wanted people to be love-struck. So when you look at folk, you can embrace their humanity, and when you embrace their humanity, that includes their body, their culture, their history, all the things that go with their humanity. You don't need to eliminate and erase their bodies and colors. No. No, not at all. But in America, colorblind is a sign of progress because black bodies have been associated with degradation. So when they say, I don't see your black body, what they're saying is, well, grandma used to associate that with degradation, and I don't anymore, so I don't see your body at all. I just see a man, a platonic form, Aristotelian essence. <laughs> and black folks say, that's not a compliment. <laughs> What's wrong with my nose? What's wrong with my hair? What's wrong with my complexion? What's wrong with my lips? When I look at you, I see your whole body, and I still embrace you. <laughs> Don't fall for the hype of this color blindness. And of course, the white mainstream media, they just promote it because they've got an impoverished rhetorical imagination when it comes to race. They think it's doing black folk a favor again. I talk to Obama all the time about this, and he's kind of stuck, you know, because he's trying to win an election. <laughs> it's true. And I, I understand that. I understand that. And he knows that my calling is different than he is. So even as I uh, do all I can to, uh, to get him into the White House, <laughs> I, I tell the brother quite explicitly, and this is why I agree with my dear brother Tavis Smiley in terms of accountability of politicians across the board, because I have a deep suspicion of politicians, I don't care what color they are. They're so, they're so subject to seduction and temptation and mainstream, with all the money and power and wealth and so forth. I say, when you win, I'll celebrate for three days, maybe break dance for one. <laughs> but on the fourth day, I'm your major critic. Because it's not about candidates, it's about causes. It's about the lives of everyday people. And if you're able to promote the kind of policies that keep track of those poor white brothers and sisters in rural Appalachia, and those brown brothers and sisters locked into those hoods, in barrios, and those black folk in ghettos, and those Asian folk trying to make their way in the face of anti-Asian sensibility, and my Arab brothers and sisters, and my Muslim brothers and sisters who have to deal with ugly stereotypes of Arabs in America, ugly stereotypes of Muslims in America. That's the litmus test, my dear Brother Obama. I know, Brother West, I know you've been telling me that for months. I'm just reminding you. Because that's the best of black history. That's the best of the history of those persons who have the courage to decide to be Democrat small d, that make Pascalian wagers on the capacity of everyday people to govern themselves and still produce stability and prosperity, but most importantly, love 
and justice. Thank you all so very much. We'll have a good time for questions. Thank you so very much. I appreciate you being so patient. We have good time for questions, though. Good time for questions, of course. Definitely. Thank you so very much. All right. Yes. All right. Jump right in, my brother. All right. First of all, I want to thank you very much on behalf of Central Washington University for coming and speaking to us tonight. Um, in your 1993 bestseller, Race Matters, you discussed the nihilistic view of young minorities in America and how they feel hopeless. And my question to you was, how do we instill that hope into today's generation, letting them know that they can be something other than athletes or entertainers? Oh, appreciate that question. Part of it has to do with my own life, though, brother. That is to say, where did I get my hope? I got my hope in part because I was so loved, I was so cared for, per persons were concerned about me. Sometimes they would lie about me and say, oh, brother Wes, I think you have real potential. That might not have been true, but I believed it. <laughs> that makes a difference. Perception makes a difference. You see, Young folk don't receive enough attention, don't receive enough care, don't receive enough concern. We have public policies that render too many of them dangling. Part of what I was referring to in my presentation in terms of schools. Because you got, you got schools, you got family, you got community, and you got mass media. Young folk wrestling with all four of those. Same time, you see. And I, I, I want to just say goodbye to the young folk. I see, is, is, is that the high school? Yeah, it's good to see you all. Good to see you all. Stay strong, though. Very much so. God bless you. The young folk locked in. They're in families. Fathers drifting, mothers overworked and underpaid. Right? They're in communities, highly impoverished. No gun control, guns flowing, buying and selling of drugs, bombarded with moving images and sound on TV, whatever they watch, MTV, VH1, BET, whatever it is. Of course, that's not true for all young folk. I know there's large numbers of young folk watch the History Channel all day. I, I know that. But uh, uh, so the question is, how do we reach those sources? This is one of the reasons why I spend as much time in, in the music and hip-hop uh, CDs and so forth, you see. So when you listen to an M1 Dead Prayers, you listen to Karis One or Raw Digger, or you listen to Talib Kweli, listen to Jill Scott, or you listen to um, who else is on the thing? Oh, Andre 3000, Outcast, all I'm on my CD. These are folk who are prophetic and progressive. When you listen to Brother Lupe, Fiasco, very progressive. You see, how come they are not more visible? Because the impact that they can have. See, I grew up where. The 60s and 70s was influential, but Chuck D means much to me. Public Enemy means much to me. Wu-Tang Clan do too. Those persons who were building on the best of the, of the prophetic and progressive elements that I was referring to. So that in that sense, and this is why I hope in this moment of melting that we begin to focus on the plight, predicaments, the creativity, intelligence, and possibilities of young folk. Because we've turned away from it in a serious way. And we've seen the devastation and disaster that is produced among a certain slice. That's true among the upper classes and the middle classes, materialistically speaking, they're doing well, but when you actually peek inside their souls, oftentimes you still see an emptiness. And I'm concerned about that too, because they're human beings, like anybody else. Appreciate that question. 
Oh, you got one set? Yes, indeed. Brother, your blue looks sharp on you. <laughs> I tell you that. Thanks. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, um, and I read your book, Race Matters. And in that book, you talk about the lack of black leadership within the black community. And um, that's very true because I live in a, in a, uh, in a similar neighborhood. Um, and I go off to other neighbors, neighborhoods and I see the lack of black leadership. So my question is, how do you reach out to people to influence them to become those black leaders that actually give back to the community? Because um, I've I seen some of your lectures and you say, these kids don't want to hear lectures, you know, they, you know, they want to see, uh, for examples, like, you know, uh, Barack Obama, he's a, he's a, a candidate of change, a, a symbol of hope for a lot of these black folks. So um, my question is, how do you just reach out into the minds of young black folks in the, in the black community to, to, to uplift them and, and to um, encourage them to be, become those, those black leaders that we want to, to uh, symbolize that hope and change, mm. just like Barack Obama? Oh, what a wonderful question, my brother. Eloquent, 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 though, brother. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're absolutely right when I say, Young people would rather see a sermon than hear one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Which is to say, we have to have examples. You know, Immanuel Kant says, uh, in his critique of pure reason, he says, examples are the go kart of judgment. Y'all do want to be able to see you, my brother. There you go. Yeah, because we, <laughs> we got an eye to eye, soul to soul thing going on here. But examples are the go kart of judgment, right? Bad judgment, use the bad examples. Good judgment, good examples. Wise judgment, wise examples. So young people don't have access to good examples and wise examples, they often end up with bad judgments. Now, part of the problem is when I say we need a renaissance of love, service, self-respect, self-regard. What I mean by that is we need to have more and more older persons in the world of young persons. One of the things I love about Susan Taylor, you all know Susan Taylor who has been working with Essence Magazine for over 30 years now, she's just left to head the national mentoring movement. And some of our fraternities are moving into this. I know my Alpha Brothers been doing it for years. We've been lecturing all around the country with mentoring movements. Same is true with sororities, Delta and AKA and a host of others. Churches need to get in on this, mosques, synagogues, temples. How do we somehow connect, touch, influence, and learn from young folk? Because let's face it, I mean, hip hop uh, uh, as a culture uh, uh, and African Bombada and Karras One and Cool Hork and others talk about this all the time. Hip hop as a culture is in part an indictment of older people because it says you haven't spent enough time with us, you haven't loved us enough. We have to raise ourselves. You see, we have to counsel ourselves. We have to guide ourselves. Well, see, when I was growing up, that was not the case. I had a whole host of loving older people in my life. That's why I grew up in a black neighborhood. It was a neighborhood not a hood. Right. There's a big difference. We were still broke as the Ten Commandments then, financially. But we had all of this guidance, guidance and counsel and so forth. Young folk don't get that. They're looking for it. They're hungry for it. Some of them find it in the gangs. See, I belong. Somebody cares for me. I follow orders. Everybody wants to belong in some way. Some young people get it in the studio, hip-hop. Geniuses like Jay-Z and the others, right? From Marcy Project, Brooklyn, he could have stayed in the gang activity. He found a sense of belonging in the studio. And who was it who saved him? It was Biggie. Right. I think I had Jay-Z in my class 
couple of years ago, and he told me, I, I was giving a lecture on Plato and, and Socrates. He said, you know, Brother West, I have actually been playing Plato, the biggest Socrates, for the last 15 years. Building on his legacy. Helping get me out of catastrophic circumstances so my genius could be appreciated. Not just financially, even though he's got a lot of money now. And God bless him. But as I told him, you are now successful. I want you to be great. The tradition wants you to be great. We want young people to be great. How can they be great? In constant contact. Great figures of the past, great figures in one's own lives. We need a national uh, uh, mobilization of mentoring and interacting and playing fundamental roles in the lives of young people. And I hope to see more of that. I know, uh, you know, Teach for America has been doing this. Sister Wendy founded this years ago from Princeton. And there are other pre persons who are emerging in this way, you see. Uh, so that your question is a profound question, though, brother. And I hope once we turn the corner, there will be more young brothers and sisters of all colors who have that kind of intimate connection with good examples, very good examples. Help bombard some of the bad examples that we often see in the media. I, I just want to get this straight so I yes. understand oh, this sure, correctly. Yes, sure, sure. <laughs> so what you're saying is a lot of these young black folks in the community that, that, that um, um, volunteer or uh, contribute to the gang activity, they're hungry for embracing that love uh, that, right. that goes on within those, that, uh, that circle or that gang. That's so right. in order for that to happen, communities have to engage in embracing love and, and giving it that, that support to those brothers and sisters so that they feel loved and they because without love you can't you can't move on Brother, you know so you said it more eloquently than I did yeah. I tell you that yeah. you're absolutely right and I give you a good example though brother I give you a good example there once was a Negro named Malcolm Little he was born in Omaha Nebraska his father was killed by white supremacists. His mother had a nervous breakdown. He ended up in an orphanage. He went to Detroit, they called him Detroit Red. And he was hungry for love, and he found himself in gangster activity. Ended up in a jail in Norfolk State Prison in Massachusetts. And he became Malcolm X. Why? Because the Honorable Elijah Muhammad loved him enough to rechannel his rage in such a way that his rhetorical genius could become manifest within Elijah Muhammad's organization. And you may know the film yeah. by Spike. Yeah. yeah, you know the story. Absolutely, absolutely. And what is distinctive about Malcolm X? He has the courage <laughs> to question himself, America, and the world. And within a short amount of time, he's dead at 39, right? A short amount of time the level of growth and maturation. He begins by loving black people in such a way that he tells the truth no matter what. No matter what. You know, the wonderful moment Johnny Carson show, he's on the Johnny Carson show, and he says, Malcolm, Malcolm, uh, 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 what do Negroes really want? And the same Malcolm, who young man was a gangster, has been transformed out of love. He's, he stares Johnny Carson, who was a major figure in American culture now. And says, Johnny, I'm the man you think you are. What do you want? 
There's, there's no mystery of what Negroes want. They want their children to be healthy. They want their streets to be safe. They want quality education. They want quality jobs. They want to be able to love and flower and flourish. And when they die, they want a dignified funeral. Isn't that what you want, Johnny? Yeah. yeah. Then what's the problem? Yeah. That's courage. Yes. Now, of course, Malcolm begins by loving black people in a profound way. But then he begins to spill over. You see what I mean? Yeah. He's loving not just black folk, he's loving brown, he's yeah. loving red, he ends up loving white folk. Yeah. Now that's a big move mm -hmm. for Malcolm, <laughs> given where he started. Yeah. Yeah. But that's growth, that's spiritual development and maturity. Yeah. But that same longing for love, I mean so much of, 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 of our problems has to do with frustrated and neglected love. Mm -hmm. And love is not the end all and be all. But it's, it's, you know, Brother Martin used to say love is the key that unlocks the door to the ultimate reality. It's the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality, you see. But when you love, you're willing to sacrifice and even die. One of the problems of so many black leaders these days is that they are addicted to the camera rather than motivated by a deep and profound love for people and willing to serve people, especially when the camera's not around. And that has to do with ego. See, that has to do with ego. Now, there are a whole host of grassroots leaders who people don't know their names who enact the love and service all the time. And I'm sure you all know them in your own communities and so forth, you see. But they don't surface publicly, televisually, and so on. But I appreciate your question, and I love the dialogue. Definitely. Yeah, I appreciate that. sister here. Thank you for coming. I was wondering, I spent some time in the Caribbean, and while I was there, I went to black churches, and I just loved it, the singing and the, the passion, and it felt soulful, and that was actually when I became a believer, so it really touched me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just listening recently to Barack Obama's listening, not reading, mm -hmm. is uh, Audacity of Hope, and he was talking about how the current Caucasian evangelical churches are really a construction of the last few decades. And I was wondering what your opinion is on this. And I can imagine how this was created, where the different bases came from. But I was just mm -hmm. wondering what your basic opinion was on these differences of the ideologies. Of the conservative evangelical brothers and sisters and more kind of mainstream. Uh, really, it seemed to me like churches. there is actually... Um, one is coming from a system of hate and a oppression, so it's really rooted in overcoming and, like Martin Luther King espoused, becoming a person based on love, whereas it often seems to me that the Caucasian evangelical churches are hung up on a system of resegregation, like you're talking about, of not being open to all human beings, and so it seems almost... Yes, yes. No, I appreciate that question. I mean, it, it, it's a, uh, a difficult question because, as you can imagine, I mean, the history of what people call conservative evangelicals uh, is a complicated manner, uh, matter. That, namely that, uh, see, on the one hand, you can say, well, 
the emergence of explicit conservative Christianity was manifest in the 1840s and 50s over the slavery question. But he split the Baptists, split the Methodists, split the Presbyterians, because one side was siding with slavery, the other side were opposing slavery. Now that's where racism, white supremacy filters through the white churches in a very powerful way. And there is a sense, it's true probably for most of us, and this is where courage is so important, there is a tendency among human beings to want to be well-adjusted even if they're willing to be well-adjusted to injustice. And so you had white churches that wanted to be well-adjusted to American culture. American culture at that time was pro-slavery. So they went with the mainstream. Now we should never forget those white brothers and sisters who went against the mainstream. Elijah Lovejoy. He was shot on his roof in Alton, Illinois in 1837, siding with the abolitionists. You see. Henry William, William, William Garrison and a whole host of white abolitionists who were cutting against the grain. And we always got our dear Quaker brothers and sisters now. <laughs> I mean, they always a wonderful litmus test for white folk who just haven't completely capitulated to injustice. You see what I mean? And it, but the Quaker's a small group. You know, Philadelphia, Pockets in Ohio. I don't know how many we got in Washington, but I know it's not a mass movement. There you go. We got a Quaker brother. There you go there, brother. There you go. You understand what I'm talking about. Very much so. And that, that history is very important to keep alive because it is not the case that the white community has ever been monolithic and homogeneous in terms of capitulating to slavery. And the same would be true with patriarchy and so on. But the dominant tendency has been that. Now, I would probably want to disagree a little bit with Brother Obama in terms of uh, the last few uh, uh, decades. It's just that that conservative strand of what I call Constantinian Christianity, a Christianity that adjusts to the empire, adjusts to the status quo, adjusts to various forms of patriarchy and racism and sexism and homophobia, that is a dominant tendency in churches because it's a dominant tendency in the culture, you see. And oftentimes we know that religions across the board are very, very adaptive, which is to say in that sense very cowardly when it comes to capitulating to evil. We saw it in the churches in Nazi Germany. Look at the churches in South Africa. Go right across the board, you see. This is true not just for Christianity. It's true for Hindu, Buddhist, Jews, right, right across the board, you see. But the challenge is that in the 1980s, you had political elites who were willing to make explicit the political alignment of conservative evangelicals at highly visible levels so that you ended up with Jerry Falwells and others. Now that in, in many ways was new because you never had such an explicit attempt to connect organized conservative Christians directly to White House and they become a major constituency, and that's part of the legacy that we're dealing with. He might have that in mind. And that also could be coming to an end, that our conservative evangelical brothers and sisters, they're concerned about poverty more and more now. They're concerned about disease and AIDS in Africa. They're concerned about global warming and so on. And this is, this is, this is very important, it seems to me. On the other hand, it's no accident. In a market-driven civilization, you're going to end up with market Christianity. A highly commercialized, commodified culture, you're going to end up with commercialized, commodified Christianity. So you get prosperity gospels, right? When you go into some of these churches, you see two ATMs before you see a cross. 
right? Because it's business. You know, the pastor, CEO, you know, the blood at the cross turning to Kool-Aid, that little thin stuff. You just want to dip in too quick to, to get your blessing. The blessing looks more and more like a Lexus than it does strength. See what I mean? So you just get the commodification of religion across the board. Mega churches. Can you imagine Jesus coming back and looking at a mega church? I mean, he wouldn't be against it, but if he looked at a mega church, what would be his first question? Where's your mega love? Where's your mega justice? He wouldn't be against it. He would have the same question for the small churches. That's the question he had when he went to Jerusalem and ran the marketeers out of the temple. You see, he didn't find the love and justice there, you see. So, I mean, I have nothing against mega churches, but you're going to have 20,000 folk. Wow, you got a love fest going on. <laughs> folk on fire for justice. The communities all look qualitatively different. You got 20,000 folk talking about the cross. But then you listen to the sermons, and you don't hear too much of the cross. You don't hear too much of the catastrophic at all. What do you hear? Triumph. Triumph. I mean, you, you could drive by many of these churches Easter week. And already on Thursday, they say he is risen and he hadn't even been crucified yet. Because folk will identify with a winner. They don't want to go down. They don't want to be wounded and deal with struggle and blood and funk and so forth. They just want the deodorized part of it. You see what I mean? Back to the hotel civilization. Comfort, convenience. You see, Christianity has never been about comfort and convenience. If you want that, go to the mall. I mean, you know, if you want to feel good about yourself, just put if you, my money you don't have, go and spend it and f get your commodity. It's not going to last that long. It's not going to help when your loved one dies. But that's the superficial option. But it's that superficializing and deodorizing of the cross and Jesus and love and justice that has been dominant. And maybe the melting will begin to melt some of our churches. And this is true also. For the mosque, look at the Americanization of Islam in the last 25 years, given the entree of our Islamic brothers and sisters. Adjusting to American culture quickly. Look at Judaism, my God. Uh, the, 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 the adjusting of Judaism to American culture. You know, 50 years ago, they're on the cutting edge of justice and willing to align themselves with the poor and so forth and so on. Then you see upward mobility quick. You get a whole host of suburban squires going to the synagogue dipping in quickly, moving right back to the middle-class life. You see what Abraham Joshua Heschel called the spiritual absenteeism of American Judaism. He could say, we can say the same thing about churches. We can say the same thing about mosques. We can say the same thing about temples. I'm sorry to go on and on in your question, but, uh, but I appreciate that question because part of the melting must indeed have much to do with uh, various forms of uh, religion, religiosity and spirituality. Our coach. Thanks so much. No, yeah, this is yeah, yes, brother. Oh no, yeah, we, we, two more questions. Yeah, we can have. We, we just let it flow, though, I appreciate that. Mm, uh, right you talked earlier about politics, and you talked about Obama. Um, a lot of cable news have been saying, the pundits have been saying, and not just Fox, MSNBC, CNN, have said that uh, they look at the exit polling and show that white people are voting for Obama and black people are voting for Clinton. Um, 
And many are saying this might be a problem for Clinton and Obama, trying to grasp their, their base. Yes, yes. Uh, on uh, CNN with Larry King, Bill Maher, someone you know, uh, said uh, Larry King asked him if that's, that, that should be a concern. And Maher says that, no, the Democrats have truly transcended this race, race and sexual relationship in, in elections. But should we be a little bit hesitant about waving that mission accomplished flag? Because November's a long way away. And should, be, should we be wary of saying that this is going to happen? We're ready for this. I know a lot of people are. But to say it nationally, that we're ready for a black president or a woman president, should we be wary? And is it OK for us to be a little concerned? Yeah, I appreciate the question. But I, I think that uh, we should always be a little wary, no matter what. No matter what. On the other hand, we don't want to downplay the breakthrough. We don't want to downplay the progress. Now, Malcolm X used to say, you don't stab folk in the back nine inches, pull it out three inches, and celebrate progress. And he's got a point. But progress is still progress, you see. And part of the possibility of, of Brother Barack Obama becoming president has to do with the process. And if people talk about it in a positive way, that takes on a force in and of itself in convincing others to believe in it as well. This is true for Sister Hillary, too, in terms of a woman, because both would be a breakthrough. I mean, patriarchy is real. There's no doubt about that. That's still a breakthrough. I mean, she's not necessarily my candidate, but I don't, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I never demonize her, of course. I know her so very well, and I respect her in many other ways. I criticize her policies. But, you know, if a woman is president, I may not break dance all day, but it'd be much of the day. Because <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. I just wish there was even a more progressive woman. But, uh, uh, but even still, I did not break down for Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I celebrated the critique of patriarchy and stopped because her conservative sensibilities sided with the strong rather than the weak. In the same way, I didn't celebrate that much for Clarence Thomas. In fact, I fought against that Negro, but I, I lost. Uh, uh, but, the, uh, uh, but I think we should be weary. But we should also take a step by step, by step. You're absolutely right. November's a long way away. You still got Texas, still have Ohio, and so on. You all know about C-SPAN, uh, State of Black Union is going to be on this Saturday with Brother Tavis Smiley. That's going to be quite fascinating. Quite fascinating indeed. Uh, uh, but but I, I, I'm with you. I think that um, when I mentioned Brother Brockus, the Reverend Brockus of uh, Monument Baptist Church, you know, his tears are, uh, are priceless. His tears are priceless. They really are. Uh, it may be hard for young people to really understand what America looked like when he was a young man 70 years ago, 60 years ago. And when it came to white supremacy, it was a very different place. White supremacy is still operating, yes. It's more covert, yes. Jim Crow senior legalized segregation is gone. Jim Crow junior de facto segregation still here. But that's still progress, just not enough. You see what I mean? And of course, Obama in that sense. Now, of course, when Obama, if, if we have two Obama administrations, that does not mean that the legacy of white supremacy is either wiped out, erased, but certainly it is pushed back. It is pushed back. Now, the worst thing that could happen, you could imagine, you know, Obama wins for president, and white brothers and sisters start looking at black people saying, you know, you have absolutely nothing to ask for anymore. You got your president. 
it's over. Racism is completely erased and eliminated. You on your own, just like we've been on our own. No, we in this together. You don't overcome 244 years of slavery and 99 years of Jim Crow with a, with a black man in the White House. Ah, no way. But the breakthrough is so monumental that you can't downplay it either. You have to be able to think. You know that wonderful line from um, F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Crack Up, in his essay, 1938, in Esquire magazine, says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. That's what we need. Breakthrough, progress, celebration, and critique, yet the legacy still goes on ad adapting and adjusting itself in various ways, but it has been pushed back. And so we have to be able to have remain on both tracks, and that's true for patriarchy as well. Appreciate the question, though. Definitely. How you doing? How you doing there, brother? Good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> All right, so earlier you were talking about how, like, the influence of music affects, yeah. like, the age of people. So, like, apartheid was kind of like Afrobeat, Filikuti, things like that, civil rights movements, you know, all those songs and everything like that. So my question was, like, you know that we're going through this, this uh, age of problems and things like that with white supremacy and everything like that. So I was asking, um, how can a musician, because, mm. you know, I play tenor sax. So oh, John right. Coltrane's, oh. like, right up my alley. Yeah. So I was, yeah. That's all right, though, man. So I was wondering, like, how can a musician, like, take the emotion, philosophy, of like the community and just bring it up and you know just get that voice heard and be original. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very important question because to see a young musician like you inspires me. I know like Brother Christian Scott. I don't know if you know Brother Christian Scott from New Orleans. He's 24 years old, plays the trumpet. Always in connection with Louis Armstrong, Clark Terry, Roy Elridge, Clifford Brown on up to his present day, but he's got to find his voice. He's connected with hip-hop, but he's a jazz musician because part of his generation. Christian McBride, the same way on the bass. James Brown on the one hand, but it's also Charlie Mingus, you see. The best of the past, the best of the present, you see. Uh, uh, and finding one's voice, you see. So that Coltrane is probably the place to always referred to because he sets the highest, highest standard. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, on the other hand, you want to be connected with or a part of the issues and passions of your day, your generation, and your time. See, Coltrane can't do that. He's been in the grave since 1967. 41 years old. He'd be dead this, this summer. He's unable to do that. It's up to you to do that. And you doing that keeps him alive. I mean, in a certain kind of way, there's this fascinating connection between you and Coltrane, younger generation, older generation, because the life that you choose and the life that I choose has something to do with whether those who came before have an afterlife in space and time. Because the ancestors give us life, and we give them an afterlife by the life we live based on what they give us. Do you see what I'm saying? That afterlife, life, Coltrane alive in you. Your name is what, though, brother? Jordan Leonard. 
Jordan. Dang, that's a jazz-like name, man, Jordan. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but Coltrane, he ain't brother Jordan, but Jordan finding his voice. The way it took Coltrane a while to find his voice. Now, he's not like Clifford Brown. He didn't find it quick. Clifford Brown's dead at 27. Coltrane took a while to find it, but when he found it, the heavens opened. You're right. But you finding your voice, same kind of thing. But you're going to be listening to the sounds of your day as well. But you're critically sifted out. Some of it's useful, some of it's not. But this is also true for the past. And this is a problem I think a lot of um, older people have in, in talking about young people. So oftentimes older people like to highlight just the best of the past when they look at the worst of the present. As if the past didn't have a worse. And as if the present doesn't have a best. Because there's a whole lot of mediocrity in the past. There's a lot of cowardice in the past. But it doesn't surface. We talk about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, but you know, Martin Luther King in Montgomery, only 13 churches out of 57 supported him. When he went to Detroit, he could only go to C.L. Franklin's church, with Ruth Franklin's father's church, and Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. That's two churches out of Detroit. You know how many black churches got in Detroit? Because the others were scared. But when we write the history, we don't start off. Let's start with the black preachers who were paid off by Henry Ford. <laughs> or in Chicago. Let's start with the black churches paid off by the Daily Machine. But that's real. That's what Martin was up against. So we present it to the young folk like all of them were there with Martin. They lying, they lying, they lying. That was not the case. In the same way, right now, there's a best in the present, but we've got to make that best and excellence visible because it's hard to find that excellence, you know, on television and, and, and video and so forth and so on. We've got to make it visible, you see. And then we begin to see the tradition really coming alive in the best sense of that tradition. That's why throughout my lecture, you know, as I kept saying, the best of black folk. Because I could have given a lecture on the history of black cowardice and black bigotry and black so-and-so. We've had black bigots, black cowards, black folk with revenge, but they didn't surface in the way Martin and Frederick and the others did. That's what's significant. That's very important, you see. What, will, what kind of history will be written about black America in the next 20 or 25 years? It's hard to say. If it is the case that we're experiencing the very slow uh, decline and decay, if not fall, of America. And that's always a possibility. All regimes come and go, right? Empire is part of the ebb and flow of history, right? And maybe 20 or 30 years from now, it's end up with an authoritarian regime. Patriotic Act becomes normalized across the board. I can't give these kind of lectures at Central anymore. They drag me off to things saying I'm unpatriotic and dissenting and telling truths that are subversive of the status quo. That's a real possibility. McCarthyism was real in the 50s. The Palmer Rays were real in the 19-teens. It depends on what we do. All democratic experiments are so fragile and always unfinished and incomplete and open-ended, you see. So that if we're experiencing the fall, then this history is going to be very different. You know, an American Gibbon, who talks about the decline of American civilization, is going to have a story to tell. Why is it that they lost contact with the rich legacies of Martin King and others? They talked about him, but they really weren't serious about him, you see. And that's what I hope that uh, not just Obama, but the whole host of persons who are undergoing this wonderful awakening that we're witnessing in terms of the issues. Uh, 
producers. Good luck in your work, though, man, on that tenor sax. Thank Good you. Good luck, though, brother. Definitely. 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 Thank you all so very much. Appreciate it. Stay strong here at Central Washington University, though. Oh, yes. Ellisburg. Ellisburg, Washington. Wow.